Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 145 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, I have a great conversation with two-time veteran Aaron Hale, a veteran of both the Navy and the Army. Aaron's story is one of persistence, resilience, and thriving in spite of the limitations he has, instead of simply surviving in spite of them. I don't spend much time on what I can't do. I focus on what's possible, even if it's hard. And I just set a goal, set a plan, I start working towards it. Even if I just have to put my head down and start working on putting one foot in front of the other, the struggle is maybe hard it may be uncomfortable but it is what helps us grow and helps us get past uh the difficulties before we get started i want to give the listeners a heads up that as we approach the 150th episode i'm going to be doing something a little bit different i have a number of great guests lined up over the next month or so so keep tuning in and after that i'm going to be putting new interviews on hold while i develop a different project that i hope to announce soon I'll be going back and putting together shorter episodes based on previous conversations, so keep subscribed, keep listening and giving feedback, and keep an ear out for the next big thing. To keep up with the latest, sign up for our newsletter by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash update. I'm also looking for those of you who want to get in early on the new project. I've started to build a community of listeners on Flick, so you can interact with other listeners, provide feedback about the show, or interact with the host and guests. While on your phone, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash community or follow the link in the show notes to learn more. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation.
Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. You know, on the show, we often have mental health professionals who are working with veterans, uh, but also I like to bring on veterans who have an, their own unique perspective on sort of their mental health journey. Uh, and I've got a story of inspiration for you today. Uh, Aaron Hale is a, a 14-year military veteran. Um, he's got a great story and uh, really appreciative that he reached out. And uh, Aaron, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot, Dwayne. And I really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad, uh, you know, there's so many of the, the stories, right? There's so many veterans right now, and so many of us have stories, um, of our post-military lives and, um, and sort of it's really hard to, uh, maybe break through the noise sometimes. Uh, but once I keyed into what you're doing and what you've done after the military, um, you know, I was floored. It, it truly is inspirational. Before we get into that, I want to give the audience uh, an opportunity to learn more about you and, and your background and sort of how you got to where you are. Well, sure. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, even before my injury and my life took a very odd turn in the military, even I it was uh, kind of a zigzagging path, uh, a career path. In fact, my whole life growing up, I absolutely knew that I'd never be in the military until about a month before I uh, was you know went to the recruiter's office. I grew up in a uh, small town, Ohio. I had a terrific, albeit vanilla, uh, childhood, and uh, I, I loved life. I um, considered myself a patriot, but I didn't really see myself in uniform. Although I didn't have much of uh, ambition for really anything at the time, didn't have much direction, and when I got to college. That really showed. In fact, uh, instead of finding a network, finding uh, direction, getting an education, I really just found Animal House. And you know, soon thereafter, and you know, 50 pounds later, I needed, and I just realized that I needed to do something else. Uh, so I, uh, <clears throat> I decided to turn things around. I moved out to California where my dad. Uh, uh, was he uh, took me in? I but it was on the, uh, it was on the you know, the the stipulation was I needed to needed to work. I needed to get you know get my life turned around. And six months I lost all of the the fifty you know the freshman fifty. Uh, I was working at a surf shop during the day. I was cooking at night and realized that li even that living in uh, California, I wasn't saving any money. And I needed to get back to I wanted to get back to college and and the military was the way to go. So I uh, joined the Navy as a cook. Uh, at the time, I wanted to be I wanted to be a chef. I've been cooking since I uh, could reach over the counter. And it was a, it was a passion of mine. And it seemed like a good direction. It was something it was something to you know, point my, my uh, crosshairs at and just go forward. Uh, so eight years in the, the, um, the Navy, they don't tell you at the recruiter station, but the Navy at the time considered, uh, considered the culinary, uh, culinary specialist, or at the time it was mess management specialist as a, a the, the, the civilian equivalent of hotel restaurant management. So instead of, 
getting off the plane in Italy on shore duty and I then sending me to a chow hall or something, they said, oh, no, 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 you're going to be running the barracks. I went from instantly went from sailor uh, cooking in sailor to uh, what was it? Uh, it was a maintenance manager uh, running trouble call tickets from the like front a, desk to like a building superintendent. Yeah, basically. And I was I was walking around with the public, the local national public works guys, the, the electrician, the plumber and whatnot, uh, all Italians. And it, every day I, I kind of just turned it into uh you know my benefit and every day i was just pointing at things going come sedice come sedice how do you say that how do you say this and i was learning italian from napolitan uh laborers but it was you know it i i you know kind of turned lemons and uh tom collins um <laughs> but uh uh two years into that i pcs to uh, the commander of the Sixth Fleet, three-star three admiral, and finally I was cooking. Uh, in fact, I skipped the the Navy galleys, you know, the big ships galleys, and went right to the top dog cooking for the brass, and it was fantastic. We, you know, we, you know the flagship doesn't do the six-month cruises, Westpacs and stuff like uh, carrier groups. The the USS LaSalle would float around the Mediterranean for a few weeks, run up the flag in a few ports, have a reception, and run right back to Gaeta, Italy, which was only a 45-minute PCS from uh, Naples, my first duty station. So it was fantastic. For four years, I uh, got to immerse myself in Italian culture, learn all of the you know uh, fantastic foods, fantastic uh, you know uh, culture, all that. Uh, on on leave and liberty time, I would see Europe, and I was seeing Europe, Europe with the with the ship, and on my liberty time, it was fantastic. However, you know about uh, 2006, um, I was. Uh, you know, both both wars were in full swing, and I realized that I had felt this this pulling, this drive to to be a little more direct in my service, a little more uh, in the fray. So when I'd uh, gotten back to the United States after my time in Italy, I vol I volunteered to. Uh, deployed to Afghanistan as what they call an individual augmentee, basically a piecemeal unit of Army and Air, or, uh, Navy and Air Force uh, service members filling in Army billets. Uh, so I went from maintenance manager uh, to, you know, to you know, chef for the Admiral to now cooking uh, at an Afghan uh, FOB forward operating base and I was I was serving five and six hundred ISAF soldiers and not just uh, US but Spanish Portuguese Italian and in fact it just so happened uh, there were two platoons of Italian special forces right on our base so I had a great time I was speaking Italian in Afghanistan <laughs> again uh, it was fantastic I, I served uh, I served with them uh, on a, on a three-month stint in North Africa and I always made sure that I was friends with the supply sergeant because they had really good espresso really good espresso. <laughs> oh absolutely in fact uh, our uh, our MR our MREs 
uh, were like gold around the ISAF <laughs> camp. So I would always trade our MREs for those little vacuum packs of uh, the espresso. And no matter where I went, even if I was on dismounted patrol, you know, my second time in Afghanistan, I was an EOD tech, but I always had that little tiny machinetta, the little uh, <laughs> espresso pot in my rucksack. You know, <laughs> this is a little bit later, maybe jumping a bit in the story, but I would, in the middle of a dismounted patrol, I would, you know, as an EOD tech, if we had a security halt, and we'd be in the middle of grape rows, I would pull out that little espresso pot, build up a little pile of rocks, tear off a chunk of C4 to cook that espresso. The patrol leader, an infantry guy, usually would come by and go, EOD, what are you doing? Espresso? <laughs> Got to keep the troops happy. Yeah, exactly. and, and, and so, and that's, uh, and, and definitely that journey and that journey of stretching. Uh, but then, like you said, you jumped into it. You went from serving in country um, and even that wasn't enough. And then you switched over to EOD. That's right. Well, while I was on de uh, deployment my first time in Afghanistan, I ran into some EOD techs while they were doing, you know, maintenance checks on their robots and bomb suits. And they had, it was like a garage sale of cool guy stuff. And I walked up to these guys and I'm like, Hey guys, what is all this? They told me about uh, EOD. And even invited me on a uh, controlled uh, detonation of disposing of some some explosives. And they had one of the UOD techs, the team leader, said, "You wanna you wanna press the button?" And I was hooked. Uh, so uh, it was it was all about the the. Uh, technical aspect of the job, the fact that you're you're a first responder and you're saving lives. Uh, there was a t it's a tight knit knit uh, brotherhood. All of that was attractive to me. So uh, even though at the time I was still Navy, I put in a request to strike uh, or switch jobs. And I at the time, you know, Navy cook in my rank was under and the next rank was overmanned, so not only did they not want me to switch over to a different job, they weren't going to promote me either. So when my contract ran out, I didn't re-enlist. I went over to the Army recruiter, and I handed them my paperwork. They looked at my, my record and saw that you know, I qualified for EOD, and they said, you want to go EOD? Okay. <laughs> I guess the Army takes anybody. That's a good point. But, uh, yeah, we do. But uh, yeah, that's how uh, I became an EOD tech in the Army and went from uh, Navy cook to Army EOD tech. Uh, began my you know, one year uh, of training, both uh, as to become, you know, switch from a sailor to soldier, and then yeah, from soldier to uh, uh, explosives expert. And it was, uh, it was arduous. It was tough, grueling, uh, and, and very uh, knowledge intensive, very stressful environment. And they make it that way on purpose. Every two days at the uh, every two to three days at the EOD schoolhouse, there's another test. You only get two chances to pass. And uh, if, if you fail the same test twice, you're you're out. And uh, an 85 is failure. So uh, they are 
there were some questions, some questions or some uh, on some things on the practical tests that one hit is a 16 point hit. So one mistake uh, will will fail you in a, one of these tests. And the attrition rate's pretty pretty high. And it should be because it's an all volunteer job. You have to you know, not when I say yeah, you know, it's, it's a volunteer job. You know, all of the military is volunteer volunteer. However, once you sign your contract. They got you, and they can put you in any job they want, except for a few certain jobs like EOD. And we have a voluntary statement, and I can I could pull it at any time and go to another job. That's how much they want people who want to be in the job. So uh, I went to my first uh, duty station as a soldier was uh, Fort Drum, and got assigned to a unit that was on its way to Iraq. And within months, I was back out in the desert. And, and that's uh, it just just that kind of uh, that journey. And you said it is a, a volunteer thing. And absolutely, we do want our EOD text to be um, you know, it, it needs to be rigorous. I was a jump master in the Army. Same thing. Hardest course I ever went through was a three week course. Took me nine months to graduate. Right. Just because of um, you want the people that are inspecting the parachutes for people jumping out of airplanes to be that rigorously trained. Um, and, and, but even for you, and I'm thinking, I mean, you, you could have stayed, uh, Hey, I've worked with enough, uh, uh, barracks managers that it's a cush job, right? I mean, you could really parlay that into a, a long-term career or cooking for a three-star admiral. You could have, you, you done well enough for your tour. You know, the boss could have set you up farther on down the line. And there's all these, any one of these things, even if you were saying, okay, I want to be boots on ground and you could have stayed being that individual augmentee and one of those few Navy guys from the fleet that had boots on ground and country, but none of this was enough for you. Um, very different from finding the frat house and, and animal house in college. Absolutely. Well, the thing is, I found that even... If I didn't have you know, a, a set course, a, 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 that direction, I found that I was always happiest when I was I was finding I was challenging myself. And every time I found a new challenge, I, I had a new goal. I had more direction and I somehow in some way would better myself. And of course, you know, it, it was growth. It was change, and it uh, it was happiness. So even from high school football to you know, becoming a cook in the navy to you know just even um, going back to being a maintenance manager at the barracks, I decided I was going to learn the new uh, electronic key card system that you find in most hotels any day, uh, every day. That was fairly new in uh, 2000, but I learned how to, you know, to change the locks, to fix the locks, to do all the repairs, run the computer system. And they, in fact, you know, fired the Italian <laughs> contractor, uh, you know, as a third party contract that was running that thing and handed it over to me. One of uh, my fellow maintenance managers, in fact, retired out of uh, retired in Italy, but became one of the representatives for the lock system. I think it was Stanley or something or other. But uh, 
because we'd take it upon ourselves to challenge ourselves or expand beyond just our daily duties, he turned it into a career. And I <laughs> moved on, but it was it's just you know one one small example of how you know you can you can challenge yourself, you can learn and and grow. So over 14 years in this idea of turning lemonade or lemons into Tom Collins, right? You know, and, and every challenge caused you to stretch. Uh, and then you were faced with an extreme challenge, um, uh, the most extreme uh, challenge when you were injured. Uh, yeah, in 2011, I was on my uh, third deployment, second to Afghanistan, second as an EOD tech. This time I was a uh, EOD team leader, so in the uh, the army at least, uh, EOD teams run in threes. Uh, so I had uh, two uh, two people on my team that were back in the truck. I deployed a, uh, the robot on an IED, and this was late at night. And it had it found a you know the standard Afghan uh, pressure plate connected by lamp cord wire to a jug of homemade explosive. And it was able to the robot was able to you know, remove the the pressure plate, but couldn't get the jug out of the hard packed earth. And I could have just dropped a block of C four and gotten rid of it. But part of my duties is uh, to make sure the you know that all of the hazards are are taken care of. That I collect as much as uh, evidence as I can as safely as possible. Uh, before you know, disposing of everything, and I didn't didn't have any known hazards uh, known to me at the uh, at the the moment. So I just uh, jumped out of the truck, went down with my uh, metal detector, uh, and about twenty or thirty meters from the the original ID, a secondary device detonated. Uh, it, it was close enough that the blast. Whether by that same hard-packed earth or who knows what, the blast only hit me in the head. Uh, from my neck down, virtually no damage whatsoever. So uh, thank goodness for you know being able to keep my my uh, my limbs, my digits, all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, the the blast did crack my skull. I was leaking spinal fluid right out uh, my nose. It. Uh, uh, blew on both my eardrums. It left me with uh, uh, some burns and scars and, uh, uh, over my face. And a, a, a piece of fragmentation had cut directly across uh, my, my right eye and across the bridge of my nose and put a gash in my left eye, which we found later. The right eye was completely gone. Now, the, the left eye was damaged to the point that it couldn't be saved. So in that that flash, I lost my eyesight. I didn't realize this at the moment because I was on my knees and elbows after getting you know the mule kick from hell. And I first did, you know the, the the first thing I was still conscious. So I, I did the systems check. I wiggled fingers and toes and bent elbows and knees, and I got up uh, upright on my knees. And I thought because the lights were out that my helmet. Had twisted get, around. Been, yeah, I'd been pushed over my face. So I reached up to grab my helmet and <laughs> did one of those, uh-oh, the helmet's gone. 
And that's when I thought, oh, this is bad. The army is going to want that back. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, then it was up to my team to, to clear a safe path to me so I can, you know, the medics can get to me. I didn't want anybody coming back into the danger, you know, area. So I started hobbling back towards my truck. Only now I had no idea where the truck was. So I'm just doing this zombie walk into no man's land. Uh, my, my teammates grabbed me, dragged me back to uh, the, the, the safe area. The medic came running up and medevac was there in about 14 minutes. We were pretty close to Kandahar, so it was a great response. And within 48 hours, I was at Walter Reed learning how to be a blind man. And and that's a and, and that is literally um, in a flash, you know, literally in a flash that that things changed for you, right? Uh, you were in for fourteen years total. I mean, obviously, you were planning on it being a career, um, and and not only is the adaptation to now the physical limitations um, different, but just adapting, you know, psychologically to a new lifestyle is different. Um, how was that for you in in those initial early days? Um. I don't, I don't know where my resilience came from or my, my uh, optimism. Uh, I just, I guess I'm naturally, uh, I've got a, a, a positive outlook, which, which really helped at, at the beginning. Um, you know, of course, my, my mother is a, 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 an amazing optimist uh, and she's terrific. And I know I get a lot of that personality from her, from her and her ra uh, raising me. But, uh, you know, family support. And it was sitting in the you know the, the bed at Walter Reed, and the of course it's it would be you know a lie to say that the the, the those those awful thoughts don't come creeping in you know the right. you know, the what is the why me's mm -hmm. you know, what what now what am I gonna do I'm blind what what can I do those those demons came knock whispering in my ear saying. Your life is over, but uh, I kind of just pushed that away, and it, it was <laughs> a large part the military training. It said, you know, I gotta, I gotta assess my situation, and I gotta figure out what I still still have available to me. I I tell a lot of people, I associate like this, um, in in the EOD community, each of those, you know, the, the three person team gets a quad con, you know, a shipping container full of tools, equipment to do their job. Every team gets this huge shipping container. But then you get to a place like Iraq or Afghanistan and you get this armored truck that you got to fit whatever tools will it'll take. You cram every shelf, every, you know, under the seats, behind the seats, whatever, you full of the tools you think you're going to need, but you have to leave a few behind. Then, like Afghanistan, you know, those goat trails won't support your armored truck. So now you're going dismounted. You're all you've got is your backpack. You know, you got your rucksack. And what are you going to do now? So from a shipping container to a backpack, we're throwing rope hooks and, you know, hook and line, some blocks of C4, some water. And I've got sticks and I, rocks. Basically, what am I going to do? I'll throw rocks at this IED. But, uh, you, you, you learn to deal with what's coming ahead with what the tools you have in your kit. So um, I, now I'm short a pair of tools, uh, my eyes, but I'm, I'm still alive. 
I've still got plenty of tools. I've got a great team, my family, my friends, tons of support behind me. I got to figure out what to do. And, and, and that's that's how I faced then. That's how I faced the, the, the next the obstacles that were to, to come. And uh, after after I recovered, after multiple surgeries, uh, I started looking for models who who has done who's done the blind thing. What have they done? So I started researching and I found that a blind man had climbed Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. I found that a blind man had solo kayaked the entire Grand Canyon. I mean, people are doing amazing things without even looking. And if they can do that, well, I can get out of this this hospital. I can go do something too. I tracked those guys down. I went mountain climbing with Eric Weinmayer. I've gone kayaking with uh, Lonnie Bedwell. And I've, I've found role models. I found uh, mentors and coaches, and I found a way to not just survive, but I pushed myself beyond what I thought you know uh, I would ever do as uh, before my injury. So I've climbed mountains. I've, I've, uh, I've run marathons. I've run Boston twice now. I've run an ultra. Last year I ran a uh, fifty-mile ultra marathon. It's just, you know, and, and, and I do uh, owe, a large, in large part, the injury is actually a catalyst. The struggle is how we temper ourselves and make us, ourselves more resilient. So I didn't seek that challenge out, but it was the challenge that helped me grow. You know, and I think that is a, a critical point, right? You know, we go through these transformations as we age. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to hang out with the 20 year old me and the 20 year old me definitely doesn't want to hang out with the 45 year old me. We change and we grow over time. Um, and then we, we go through these transformations and you can look back on your stages of your career, different times where you transition and transformed. Um, but many times, and, and I'd imagine you've seen those with some of the catastrophically wounded, ill and injured veterans that you've probably talked to, um, that, that, that transformation is disrupted. You know, we get to this place and the phrase that comes to my mind is our disabilities don't limit us or define us, but some veterans not allow that, but, but some veterans do have their disabilities that limit them and there's sort of a disrupted transformation. Yeah, well, whether you have some kind of disability or not, we often find a comfortable place where we can we can rest because change, growth, it's hard. Uh, it's uncomfortable. And comfortable is, well, comfortable. But I found that if I sit back and I found this from a lot of my, my fellow uh, disabled friends uh, and all, all my friends who lead happy lives is that they're not, they're not satisfied with sitting back at, in, in being comfortable because there's, there's this common feeling that if we're not growing or doing the opposite, there is no actual status quo. So as soon as you stop working, you stop and you sit down, you start. Yeah, you know, I, I feel I feel of myself. If I'm not running, if I'm not working out, I start feeling the the wheels falling off. Uh, I don't I don't I don't take any medicine uh, for my injuries. I, I don't uh, 
my medicine is physical activity, is study, is reading, is spending time with my family. And if I don't have that, I do feel myself starting to fall apart or I feel those demons uh, start knocking again. So it's not that you are managing an illness. You are, um, you are increasing wellness. You are, you are ensuring that there is wellness in your life. And in doing that, the negative aspects or the majority of the negative aspects of your injuries simply don't impact you day to day. Right. Uh, the, you can, you can look at anything from a number of different perspectives. Uh, and if I look at it from what I've lost, it's pretty depressing. Uh, not only did I uh, get you know, lightning struck me twice, it's not only uh, well, literally with an explosion, but a few years later with the meningitis, uh, I, I was right back in the hospital. And this time it stole my hearing. Uh, you, you in the video can see the, I, I have a, a cochlear implant. Actually, I have uh, both uh, both ears are completely switched off. Um, but the blast damage from the explosion years before uh, made my right ear it was too far too damaged for the cochlear implant to do to work. So now I my only auditory input is through uh, my my left processor. The ears are just there to hold it up. Uh, so the uh, you know you could you could look at it uh, these these things what you've lost and I could I could dwell on that or like I said I can look at what tools I have in my my kit carry on and it was you know not only not only did I lose my hearing at that time but I lost my inner ear sense of balance that vestibular balance so now. In 2015, this was, I couldn't see, I couldn't hear, I couldn't even walk without uh, the, the trekking poles I used. I used to use for mountain climbing. I was using that to get to the mailbox and back. And that took work just to get out of the wheelchair. And like I said, um, you know, I, I, I could have dwelled on, uh, it could have been miserable. I could have stayed in the wheelchair or sat uh, at uh, uh, sat at the kitchen counter and just waited for, I don't, I don't know, what, 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 what do you do if you give up? Uh, and and I, I, I didn't have an answer for that, so I had to do something. And uh, I did what any normal person in my situation uh, would do. I started a chocolate company. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and, and, and definitely, and, and even all of this, right, overcoming or, or – um, and, and I like to work the veterans that I work with as a, a therapist – um, talking about acknowledging our limitations rather than accepting. Then you acknowledge your limitations and you adapt it around them. You use the tools um, that you have rather than the tools that you you wanted that are back on the base. Um, it, but even like you know, like you said, this this good attitude and and people could say, okay, that's enough, mate. Okay, so all right, so you know, 
You were in the Navy. You were doing good stuff. That would have been enough. Not enough for you. I want to deploy. Okay, you deployed. You got that. That would have been enough. No, not enough. I want to go EOD. All of these things and, and sort of there's these limits. And, and like you said, comfortable is not comfortable for you. Um, even after overcoming or, or adapting to uh, the injuries that you have, you went on and started your own company. Well, it was, again, it was kind of by accident. I just needed something to do. Uh, I was very limited in uh, what I could do at the time. Uh, it took months uh, for first, I, I had to wait for the meningitis to clear my system, the you know heavy dose of antibiotics, to, to, to before they would uh, even perform the surgery to, to do the implants. And then I had to do one at a time. Of course, they did my right ear first. And then I had to wait to, to get it tuned in. And that didn't work. And so then surgery, wait for the surgical site to heal, tune in. And it wasn't an instant thing. My brain had to learn completely a new, completely new way of hearing. It was a digital... Uh, input is an electrode that goes right into your inner ear. So, I, I mean, it's, it was like listening to the whole world through a speak and say. Um, so, and it took, I was completely deaf for over six months. And it's such an isolating feeling, such a horrible, lonely place to be blind and deaf and just not know uh, how long it was going to last. And I was my, my my whole world ended at the ends of my fingertips. It it was it, it, like I said it it it, it could have been it would have been really easy to feel sorry for myself, but the holidays were coming. We invited the whole family, friends. We were going to have a feast. And one thing I did know is I could still cook. I. <laughs> I couldn't uh, see the food. I couldn't hear the food cooking, but I knew what to do. So I began making this elaborate feast. I started weeks in advance. I was making desserts and just freezing them or whatever, what have you. And I was making a ton of fudge. And I was, I was, I was throwing, you know, after I make, I make one batch of fudge and I throw nuts in there. I tried raisins. I would, you know, throwing uh, spices. I even dump a little alcohol in there, a little for me, a little bit. And my, my wife, actually my girlfriend at the time, um, uh, who I later made my wife cause she's amazing. Um, she said she noticed something she hadn't seen in six months. And I was a smile on my face because I was doing something. I was actively engaged in something. And I, I realized that I was, I was happiest when I was doing something for somebody else. It wasn't just an activity for me making the food. I was doing this because I thought my, my guests, my family, my friends, you know, we were going to have a great Thanksgiving. I was going to give that to them and they weren't going to sit around feeling sorry for me. Because I hated, I hated being so dependent on others because I didn't want to to be that um, uh, burden on others. And this was a way that I could give to them. So it made me feel terrific. Uh, in fact, I made so much fudge that uh, Michaela, my wife, 
who was sneaking it out the front door. And I say sneaking, like you have to be real stealthy around a blind deaf guy. But uh, she was giving it away. She was giving it away to the neighbors. And um, they were coming back and saying, can we buy more of this? Of course, the uh, the capitalist in me said, wait, of course you may. <laughs> no, I won't allow you to pay me to do what I want. Uh, and and that's uh, that's kind of how uh, uh, EOD fudge was born, or this time instead of explosive ordnance disposal, extraordinary delights. And uh, the, the, after uh, after we we you know, we got it started, it kind of exploded itself. We it, it started growing and catching on, and um, now now it's a it's a business. You know, there's this thread again of um, when you in your life and, and correct me, obviously, if you, you don't see it this way. Uh, but if there's times when you're lost and you're uncertain, you fall back on that one thing that you do know, which is cooking. You said, I, you know, is whenever I uh, as soon as I was old enough to see over the counter, I was cooking, um, you know, <laughs> like you, I was tired of sleeping in my dad's basement and I took a shot of semester of college. It wasn't for me at the time. Um, and, and so it was the army and the excitement of adventure, really wild things. But when you had that sort of uncertain and you were even cooking at night, you said in California, um, but there's this, this skill that you developed at a young age that you always seem to come back to, which is a grounding place for you. Um, but it's also something solid, I guess, for you to hold on to. Um, you know, it's, like anything, any skill you develop over time and you spend a lot of attention to it, you have a lot of time on it, it becomes, for me, it became not just uh, a hobby, not just an activity, but it became it became therapeutic for me. Uh, the, the, the cooking was something familiar that I could still do and and I'd become good at, good enough at it that I could do it without even looking or hearing uh, what I was doing. And uh, while uh, the from time to time the smoke detector became our dinner bell, uh, <laughs> used used to used to scare the heck out of my my son. Now he's like, "Oh, dinner's ready," but. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I did adjust my, my skill set uh, to in my, my cooking uh, to you know for my you know my, my new set of abilities. But yeah, it's uh, it's therapeutic. It's a hobby. It's also a, a fairly lucrative business. And uh, so, in but it's also this thing of um, and again, you, you talk about the tools that you have. Um, and, and I hear this as applicable again to a lot of the veterans that I work with as a clinician and, and many of the people that listen to this show is, um, you didn't focus on what you couldn't do, right? A lot of us will, like you said, it's that mindset shift, whether I'm going to look at the dark side of the picture, I'm going to look at the light side of the picture. Um, if I'm going to look at what I can't do and that's what I focus on, then that's when my, my, you know, depression sits in and despair and suffering but instead, you said, "Okay, what I can't do isn't important. Let me focus on what I can do." Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, I don't spend much time on what I can't do. I focus on what's possible, even if it's hard. 
and I just set a goal, set a plan, I start working towards it. Even if I just have to put my head down and start working on putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and, and the most literal example of that is when I couldn't, didn't have any balance at a treadmill and I held on to my treadmills, uh, stability bars with an iron grip and I just turned it on. And you know, the, when you turn on a treadmill, it goes at half a mile an hour and I just walked until I could build up to a jog and then I was running again. And then, uh, yeah, I ran my first marathon when I, after I'd gone blind, ran my first ultra marathon, having never seen or heard anything about it. Um, and during, during the race, I just ran. And it's a very literal, literal uh, explanation of it. But, uh, yeah, it, it, the, the struggle is maybe hard. It may be uncomfortable, but it is what helps us grow and helps us get past uh, the difficulties. I work with a lot of justice involved veterans, right? You know, we, we end up, uh, you know, you worked with enough soldiers, I'm sure that ended up downtown, wrong place, doing the wrong thing and end up in front of a judge. And, um, in, in after going through the program that I work with, with them, they say that, uh, I'm not glad that it happened. I'm not glad that whatever got me in front of the judge occurred. Um, but on the other hand, I'm very glad of the outcomes and what happened after that. And that's what I'm hearing from you. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, that's again, um, you know, that positivity, the, 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 the optimism, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not quote unquote, uh, blind uh, optimist because that is a pitfall in itself. Uh, you don't want to be, uh, and what, what is it? Um, the, the Stockdale scenario or, uh, uh paradox, uh, where um, the uh, prisoners uh, would say it's going to be we're going to get rescued by by Christmas, and Christmas would come and go, and okay we'll be rescued by Easter, and they would be optimistic about but Easter would come and go, and they would lose hope, and it was uh, it was Admiral uh, Stockdale that um, noticed. Um, it was the optimists that lost hope. And once you lose hope, then, um, they would, they would die within the next three days. It was, it was, it was just like that. So it's not about just being optimistic. It's about, uh, being realistic about your situation and, but having a, having faith in a, the, the, the outcome. So you just put your head down, you go, you work through the difficult parts. And when you get to the end, you say, well, I'm on the other side and I'm glad to be here. You know, and, and um, I'm sure you've heard this before, very inspirational story. And, and really, um, I can see um, where it came from, even from the beginning saying, you know what, I didn't plan on being a building manager, but I'm going to be the best dang building manager I can possibly be, right? Um, all of these different things, and this built up to your ability to um, to rebound from or, or recover from, even grow from, from the incident. Um, I wonder what it's like for you. People People probably call you hero, right? People call you inspirational. Um, 
a lot of veterans struggle with that sometimes. And, and, um, and, and I wonder how that is for you. Um, I, uh, you know, I just, I, I say, thank you. It's, it's a little awkward for me mm-hmm. as I, I'm sure you, you know, and, um, I, I like the, the example, uh, uh Governor Eric Greitens, who was a former uh, Navy SEAL, he wrote the book uh, Resilience, mm-hmm. Hard-Won Wisdom on Living a Better Life. And he's got this mantra that he's t- he says every day, twice in the morning. And I do it myself now after having read the book. Um, he it, 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 it basically paraphrasing says that everybody has uh, something to teach you. Uh, and everybody is better than you at something in some way. So if I can have something to teach somebody else, I'd be glad to pass that on. If it's just being inspirational, uh, then I'll pass that on. But I'm more uh, open to what others can teach me, can show me, and 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 hopefully we can all move forward uh, through all of our, all life's difficulties if we, we work together. And this is one of the things that we learn uh, from our military service service members. And, and it's not all, you know, damaged and broken in the crazy combat vet. Um, but it's this, um, the selflessness, right? The service, the, the sacrifice um, uh, that we have, um, is sacrificing of our time, um, like you literally sacrificing your health. Um, and, and of course our brothers and sisters who have made the ultimate sacrifice. Um, but it is a legacy of service and it's something that, that continues. Um, and, and again, I got the sense that that was the case for you. And, and, and again, it would have even been easy for you to just do EOD fudge and just like you said, plow down, but you also recognize like, um, you know, individuals like yourself, um, uh, who, you know, you do have an example to be able to set for others. And if you have the ability to do something like that, then maybe you have the responsibility to do something like that. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. Uh, I do feel as though I may not have all the answers, but I do know what's worked for me. If I can share that, uh, with some some others that are having a difficult time uh, with with their their lives, their issues, their their struggle. Um, it, my solutions may not work for them, but I'm happy to share it. Uh, I, I'm happy to uh, speak. I've uh, done keynote speeches uh, now across the country, and as long as I'll keep doing it, as long as people keep inviting me. No, that's great. I, I really appreciate uh, uh, sharing your story and, and spending time with us. Um, looking on the website here, um, you know, uh, maybe not right for diabetes or those that, um, you know, uh, dark chocolate, sea salt gophers and mint alps. And, and you got some really good stuff. If people want to check out EOD Fudge or find out more about you and what you and your wife and your family are doing, how can they reach you online? Well, you can uh, reach us right through the uh, website, eodfudge.com. You can also find us on uh, social media, uh, it, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's all EOD Confections. And I'll make sure to uh, to get that in the show notes. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today, Eric. 
Well, thanks for inviting me on, Dwayne. This has been fun. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. Aaron's story is amazing. I was inspired when I first heard about it, inspired when I was talking to him, and inspired when I was putting the show together. It's almost unbelievable, but it happened, and he's taken to sharing his story as far and as wide as he can to be able to help other veterans understand that they can survive and thrive in spite of their limitations. A couple of things from a mental health point of view that helped Aaron succeed. First, this new buzzword called resilience. Aaron demonstrated resilience even before he got injured. He struggled a bit before the military, but pulled himself out of it. His first tour of duty in the Navy wasn't what he expected, so he made the best of it. He wanted more from the military, but he wasn't allowed to in the Navy, so he took steps to make the world the way he wanted it to be than simply allow the world to dictate to him how things were going to be. Second, his injuries, first the blindness, then the deafness, didn't dampen his optimistic spirit. Some people may think that either you're an optimist or you're not, but you can learn how to be an optimist. I know, because I certainly have. I used to be a cynical pessimist, and now I work very hard to be a less cynical optimist. These are not personality traits that you're born with or they develop in your childhood. They're outlooks that you can change, and through change, you can see some success. Aaron's story is an inspirational one, and I'm sure that you'll be even more inspired when you learn more about it. Thanks for taking the time to listen. To find out more information, you can go to the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST145. While you're there, hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave an honest rating or review. It helps others find the show. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can also sign up for our newsletter by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash update. You can join our growing community on Flick to get in on the first notifications of the new project that we're going to be doing by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash community. I'd also like to let you know of a series of webinars that I'm providing for NADAC, the National Association of Addiction Professionals. I'm presenting a series of six webinars on service member, veteran, and military family mental health. There'll be live webinars presented over the remainder of 2019, and after they're complete, they'll be available to watch on demand. See more about the series, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash NADAC to check them out. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. Well, I'm a therapist. I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album, Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul. Eventually my drinking, it got out of control. There in darkness, I roam, struggling to find home. See, suddenly death didn't feel so alone. 22 a day, destination unknown. It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone. But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone. Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating Tranquility, authentic tendency, embrace my ability.
sin, gave every shred, every last thread of my identity, conquer my fragility, eliminate the enemy, deliver me, God, from temptation. Tell me that this life is just a matrix, need a facelift, back to basics, vision LASIKs, I only feel alive when I hear the bass kick. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.